listening to First Church Charlotte. Uh, we are in the Gospel of Mark. If you would like to turn with me to Mark chapter number nine, we will read at verse. We will read at verse number six. And why don't we stand together? I will endeavor to be quite concise tonight and respect your time. Uh, Mark chapter number nine, and we are reading at verse number, excuse me, let me make sure I'm in the right spot here. Uh, let's actually read at verse number nine. Chapter nine, verse number nine. Now as they, who is they? Jesus and the three inner disciples, Matthew, excuse me, Peter, James, and John, uh, they come down from the mountain. Jesus commands them that they should tell no one the things they have seen till the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept this words, this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. They kept the word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And so I'm going to start in this passage of scripture and teach for a little while. Before you're seated, turn to your neighbor. Tell him, I love the word of the Lord. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. We have the song ready to sing? I think I want to sing a song. Let's go. What a beautiful name it is. What a beautiful name it is. The name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a beautiful name it is. Nothing can stand again. What a beautiful name it is, the name of Jesus. And what a powerful name it is. Lift your voice, help us sing this song. name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is, nothing can stand again. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. One more time, lift your voice, sing it. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus Christ, my King. What a powerful name it is, nothing can stand again. What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. What a powerful Jesus. name, what a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. We bless your name, O oh God. We glorify you. We magnify you. We worship you in this house. 
Amen. Sorry for springing that on you guys. Uh, I just want us to have our mind kind of gathered in here together before we get in the word of the Lord. Uh, we're not just talking about, you know, Christmas cookie recipes here. We're talking about the most wonderful story that's ever been told. We're talking about this book that is our life, our hope. It gives us a path to heaven. It gives us a, a, a recipe for living, if you want to think of it that way. And we want to approach the word of the Lord with the approach, the appropriate devotion and care. Can I have a big amen? Can I have another big amen? All right. And so something has just happened to the disciples that is very, very powerful. Uh, their understanding of what it means to follow Jesus Christ has been turned on its head. As I've spent the last few Wednesday nights talking about, uh, they had up until this moment when Jesus reveals to them Calvary and he shows them that he must die and that this work of the kingdom of God that would be done on earth, it was going to go through uh, Golgotha's hill. And at first, the disciples are very troubled by this. It takes them a little while to get their head wrapped around it. And they eventually do. Peter takes it upon himself to rebuke the Lord and try to do an intervention in, in, in the, the path of this ministry. And uh, it doesn't work. Jesus holds fast to this path of sacrifice as a way of manifesting the kingdom of heaven on earth. I want to say that again. Jesus holds fast to this path of sacrifice as a way of manifesting the kingdom of heaven on earth. If we are going to manifest the kingdom of heaven here on earth through our lives, there is going to be sacrifice involved. I know no one's excited about that. I know that's not something to make you want to jump up and down and say hallelujah. But I want to tell you this. If we would be his disciples, we must get comfortable with the idea of self-denial. We must get comfortable with the idea of not living for ourselves, not living with selfish motive, not living according to the lusts and pleasures of this world, but to see beyond this world, to see a promise beyond this life, and to live our life as though heaven matters more than earth. That is what it means to be the followers of Jesus Christ. To be a Christian might be a social label, but to be a follower of Jesus Christ means you are comfortable with self-denial, you are comfortable with turning away from the pleasures of the flesh, and you are willing to dedicate yourself instead to something that is beyond this world, something that is more important than this life as we have known it. We, all of us, are challenged to be true disciples, not just labeled Christians, but true disciples. Let me read to you a passage from the writings of Oswald Chambers uh, as a way of, of reminding you of this high calling that is upon all of us. He writes this, choosing to suffer means that there must be something wrong with you, but choosing God's will, even if it means you will suffer, is something very different. And no saint should ever dare to interfere with the lesson of suffering being taught in another saint's life. The people used to strengthen us are never those who sympathize with us. In fact, we are hindered by those who give us sympathy because sympathy only serves to weaken us. Jesus said that self-pity was of the devil. 
and references Matthew 16, 21 to 23. Look at God's seemingly incredible waste of his saints according to the world's judgment. God seems to place his saints in the most useless places. Jesus never measured his life by how or where he was of the greatest use. God places his saints where they will bring the most glory to him, and we are totally incapable of judging where that may be. What is, what is the author uh, trying to write? Now, Oswald Chambers uh, was of another generation, but he is a powerful writer on the subject of consecration and on the subject of how we must be true Christians and have consecration and even sacrifice in our life. What is his point in uh, that passage and what is my, my point in sharing it? We cannot forget that at the core of Christianity is a giving of ourselves. At the core of Christianity is a truth that the sheaf of grain must fall to the ground and die. And if it doesn't do that, then it abideth alone. If we live for ourselves, we miss the kingdom. If we live selfishly, we miss the kingdom. If we live to please the flesh, we miss the kingdom. If we value our way over God's way, we miss the kingdom. What does it mean to be Christians? What does it mean, mean to be God's people? I'll tell you what it means. We must be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ is to live our life in such a manner as if to say the kingdom of heaven matters more and will always matter more than the kingdoms of this world. And so uh, they have to accept this, and it is after they accept this that Jesus calls away these three inner disciples for a greater revelation. We talked about this. He takes them up to a high mountain. Some scholars like to think it was Mount Carmel. Uh, I don't believe we exactly know. I think there's competing theories, but he takes them up to a high mountain, and there he is transfigured before them. Appearing with him is Moses signifying what? The law, thank you very much. We have one studious person over here. And also with him is Elijah signifying what? The prophets, thank you much. We have another studious person here. So we have appearing with him the law and the prophets. It is in symbol, it is in type, but it is more powerful because of that. Because it's going to give you, when presented in symbol, it's going to give you an overarching truth that reaches all the way back and pushes all the way forward. Do you see, if you just see it as a, um, a, a movie shot, just a, a moment that Hollywood tries to glamour, then it's just personalities. But if you see it in type and in symbol, you understand what is being said here. Peter comes up with the idea, let's build here three tabernacles. Um, and then the voice from heaven, you probably will remember, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Peter is often prone to speak out when he's nervous. I know people like this. As soon as they're nervous, they start talking. I'm here to tell you they're dangerous people. They don't mean to be dangerous people, but they're dangerous people. If you talk when you're nervous, you should develop your own technical foul system where you can call a technical foul on yourself. And some part of your brain, the part that observes the rest part of your brain, can say, hey, technical foul, you should just hush. And so if Peter just had this technical foul function working in his brain somewhere, when he doesn't know what's going on, he just hushes, he would save himself from a lot of trouble. But his error is intentional that it might show us, teach us, lead us, open our understanding. Because some of us are just like Peter. We don't need a plan. We just need lots of motivation. We don't need facts. We just need opinions. 
You say, I'm not like that. Yes, you are. I've been following you on Facebook. You are exactly like that. You don't have the facts, but bless God, you got some opinions. Anyway, offer that as a holiday note for you that consider that a free stocking present for you. Um, And so here Peter is representing us. We all of us have opinions that we value more than the facts. And when the facts are given to us differently, we don't change our opinions. We just look for a different set of facts. This is to be human. And Peter, if he just would hush, well, that would be in his favor, but uh, no, he is going to speak out. And so he speaks out and he says, hey guys, let's build here three tabernacles. What do you do when there's three? You're saying they are equal. You're not saying there's one, you're saying there's three. They are equal. In other words, in symbol, remember, it's more powerful to see in symbol than to see in personality. In symbol, what you're saying is the law was given and it matters just as much as the Christ. And the prophets were given and they matter just as much as the Christ. And what God wants you to see is that the law must stand in the shadows when Christ is presented. And the prophets must all be silent when Christ is presented because it is on Jesus Christ that we build our life. It is on the man Christ Jesus. And I say with a voice in heaven, uh, hear ye him. There's lots of thinkers out there, lots of religious people, lots of teachers of this, teachers of that. But let me tell you, at the end of the day, I am going to stand on this rock, Christ Jesus. Hear ye him. He has the words of eternal life. And so they, 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 uh, Peter, once again, gets, you know, backslapped by the Lord. Uh, not literally, but you get the idea. He just got, Peter, just no, no. You don't know what you're talking about. Um, we're not building here three tabernacles. In fact, it's more complicated than that. You don't even get to talk about this until after the resurrection. There are some revelations that do not help people. If you are used in this gifts of the Spirit, you should be careful using gifts of the Spirit to virtue signal, show how powerful you are, get involved in things that aren't your business, uh, have errors of justice, uh, or in some way get out of order of anointing or place. Just because you have understanding doesn't mean your understanding helps anybody. This is why Paul can see things and say, it's not lawful for me to utter. What are you talking about? I know of no law that says some things you can share, some things you can't. This is a Paul's understanding within himself. It's not going to help anybody for that to be shared. This is a self-imposed limit that Paul is placing upon himself. In other words, these three disciples are, they represent a, a circle of discipleship of revelation. They are given revelatory insight. And the Lord says, don't share anything of this until my resurrection, because all it will do is muddy the waters. All it will do is cause confusion. Now, I want you to know, I want you to share later. And they do know, and they do share. In fact, when uh, John writes in the beginning of his book, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. Chapter 1, verse 14, he's talking about this moment. Uh, when, when, when Peter talks in his um, epistles about the glory of God, seeing the glory of God, he's talking about this moment. They do share. They do tell. But they do so uh, later when they are supposed to. Now they're coming down from the mountain and we're given this quite interesting moment of scripture where we see... Uh, 
as they come down from uh, uh, the mountain in verse number uh, 9 of chapter 9, he commanded them they should tell no one. So they kept this word to themselves, questioning. Somebody say questioning. Questioning. Now we are given to understand through the words of Mark that they specifically are questioning what it means to be resurrected from the dead. Why these thoughts now? Well, two big reasons. Number one, Christ has recently told them that he's going to die and he's going to be resurrected. That's number one. Number two, they've just seen Moses and Elijah. Death may not be exactly what they thought it was. You ever have something happen to you and you, when it happens to you, you're just kind of in shock and you don't know what the consequences are, but you know everything's different? <laughs> Um, if, you, if you've never had that happen to you, hopefully you will never get a scary call from a doctor. Because if you get one, uh, you'll be in shock. And you won't know what necessarily this means. You, don't know what, what, you won't know what kind of treatment you have to have. You don't know what kind of pain and suffering you have to go through. You don't know if you're going to live or die. You don't know, but this is what you know. Everything just changed. Um, I think this is like this spiritually for the disciples. They, they, have, they, they are just getting comfortable with the idea that Christ is going to die and be resurrected. And then on Mount Transfiguration, they are brought face to face with two dead people. <laughs> Moses and Elijah. Maybe death is not what we think it is. Maybe there is a world beyond this world. Why does this matter? Well, there's a lot of reasons. On the, on the Christian level, it matters because if we have not a life beyond this life, then the Christian hope is flawed and fundamentally in error. There must be a life beyond this life, a, a world beyond this world. We cannot be eternal beings without a life beyond this life. Now, that's just a Christian, and Paul talks about this, and Paul reassures us that because Christ rose from the dead, that same spirit which raised up Christ from the dead, if it dwell in you, will quicken your mortal bodies. Praise the Lord. Now, on a Jewish level, jumping back in time to their context, there's a huge debate within Judaism whether or not there is uh, a, a, the soul is eternal. Um, that seems so odd to us. Uh, that We kind of get that, you know, with our uh, first introduction to Christianity. And we, we become what a philosopher would call dualists. If you're a dualist, you believe in two separate worlds. You believe in a world material, and you believe in a world of the spirit. Um, but in this time of the Jews, there's a big, big debate debate whether or not uh, the law of, of Moses is a way of being, not the promise of eternal life. Is it simply a way a tribe, a people, a nation should live? Or does it speak to a world beyond this world, a life beyond this life? Now, the two big purveyors of this philosophical distinction, difference, argument, is on one hand the Pharisees who believe there is eternal nature of the soul, and the Sadducees who believe there isn't. They are, uh, shall we say, enamored of Greek philosophy. They're, they're in love with that idea that it's just a way of manifesting oneself in the, the, the world. Uh, this, this, this law of Moses is just a way of orienting ourselves. It is a manner of being. It does not speak to eternity. Jesus comes along and he comes down strongly on the side of eternal life. And I'm glad to give all of you the good news today. Uh, you have an eternal soul. I should say it differently. You are an eternal soul. Soul, what you have is a body. <laughs> and so, 
And so this is the disagreement. Now, 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 uh, Jesus has not spent a whole lot of time arguing uh, philosophy with with the disciples. The questions, interestingly, the questions the Pharisees, uh, the scribes, the teachers of the law have tried to trap him in have not necessarily been on this issue. Uh, There is a couple places in the Gospels where this issue is brought up. uh, But it's not as though Jesus has really spent a lot of time pounding on this philosophical idea or theological truth. He just hasn't done it. Um, And so the disciples, they are told by Jesus, he's going to die, he's going to be resurrected, and now they come face to face with Moses and Elijah. It's only logical that they would begin to think differently about resurrection. If I could get every one of you here today to really, really, really believe in the resurrection, it would affect every decision you made for the rest of your life. I don't mean just believe in it kind of as a faith declaration. I'm talking about believe in it as a reality that you hold to every day because it is indeed true that we are all of us eternal souls and we are going to live forever. And they are left questioning. Uh, there's a lot of things they have to process. They, they are thinking first and foremost about this idea of eternal life. What does it mean? What does this resurrection from the death mean? But it's interesting that they've spent the last few days having to reassess everything. You see, as long, hear me today, this is what I want to get into for a few minutes. As long as they can project their plan for Jesus onto Jesus, then they don't have to really face the facts of who Jesus is or what his ministry is going to be. But once Jesus defines his own ministry and he declares his own path, you have to reassess what it means to be a Jesus follower. You see, as long as you believe Jesus has come to throw off the yoke of the Romans, you don't have to really uh, uh, face who he is and what he represents. As long as you believe that he's just a gospel, a good teacher, I should say, then uh, you don't have to really face who he was, who he is. But when he tells you he's going to Jerusalem to die, to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and elders, and to be crucified, when you Come face to face with that reality. You can no longer project onto him what you want him to be. I think it is still a problem in so many people as they grow from spiritual immaturity into maturity. Um, It's very, very much a part of our human nature for us to see in God what we wish him to be and to project upon him what we want him to represent. Not to humble ourselves and say what we would you do and what would you have me to do? Uh, I know people that are very, very, um, the, they, there is, there is much appeal to them from prosperity gospel. Now, I want to explain real quick. I'm not against prosperity gospel. I'm just here to tell you if that's all your gospel is, it's about an inch deep. Do you see? Do I believe God blesses his people? Absolutely. I'm a witness. I'm a testimony that God blesses his people. I could tell you story after story in this church of God blessing his people. But if all your gospel is is a prosperity gospel, it's about a mile wide and an inch deep. 
you see. It's like the Red Sea of the atheist. They just can walk across to the other side. That's about how deep your gospel is. It's so much more than that. Yes, there's blessing in it. Yes, there's prosperity in it, but there's so much more. And there must be, do you see? There must be so much more. Otherwise, you're going to have to go through the Bible with a penknife and you're going to have to take out Calvary. You're going to have to take out the story of the disciples. You're going to have to take, about, take out Stephen being stoned because there's not a bit of prosperity in any of that. You're going to have to take out the sufferings of Paul. You're going to have to take out the sufferings of Peter. You're going to have to take out the agony whereby the new church is born through persecution and blood and fire. And you're going to be left with a little bit of a sliver and say, oh, that's the prosperity gospel. No, I believe in the prosperity gospel. I believe it is a very small part of the gospel. However, if you go through and you pick your scriptures, I know people that are very, very ambitious in career and they are, that appeals to them. I, I know people that are attracted to churches that preach that and that appeals to them very, very, very much. Um, it, it feels a need within them. What they're doing is they're seeing what they need in God and not letting God speak for who he is. Um, and this happens over and over and over. Almost, uh, I would say, most false doctrines that have arisen over time are the result of some studious person with a raging need within them going to the Scripture and finding the Scriptures that answer that need that is within them and emphasizing these Scriptures above all the other Scriptures. Let me tell you, the word of the Lord is given, and it is level ground. You don't get to go through and say, this scripture is more important than this scripture, this scripture is more important than this scripture. The only time you get to do that is if the Bible itself does that, and the Bible does do that in some places. Things like this are emphasized above everything else. All the law and all of the prophets are fulfilled in uh, loving the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. You see, the Bible sets those scriptures higher. But we don't get to go through. But if you bring a need, I, I, I knew a, a lady one time, a, a darling, just a lovely person, and uh, she, had, she had, uh, had never known her father. She had never known her father. And uh, I had one of the first, back in the day, I had a laptop that my mom and dad had bought me when I graduated from college, and it was a 386 with a black and white screen. We were rolling. <laughs> and uh, I had one of the first Bible search uh, uh, programs on there, and, and she asked me, a several times, could I print out all the scriptures in the Bible that have to do that God is a father? And uh, she said, I, I never knew my father. And sometimes I feel that like an emptiness inside of me. I never knew my father. And, and I, want, I want to have all these scriptures. And then when I feel that rise up with me, I can go get these scriptures and I can read them and I can let God be my father. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. We should bring our broken pieces to the word of God. But we don't do theology from our broken pieces. Is that fair? Somebody give me an amen like you're enjoying yourself. Thank you. We bring all of our broken pieces to the word of God. We do. But we don't do theology from our broken pieces. Because if you do, you'll end up with a twisted theology that is made to fit the broken pieces of you. And God's gospel fits more than your broken pieces. God's gospel's made to fit all the broken pieces. Aren't you thankful for that? His gospel fits my broken pieces. 
But if I force it to only fit mine, then it can't fit yours. But I'm going to leave the gates of his hope and his mercy and his truth as wide as possible. And whosoever will can come and bring their broken pieces into his presence and be made whole by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, we, we see this, this reassessing as, as, as the disciples are having to get used to this idea. Uh, let's assume that Judas was a zealot. A lot of people think he was. And uh, he's going to have to face the fact that Jesus does not care about Rome, the overthrowing the Roman Empire. What Jesus wants to do is convert the Roman Empire. Oh, that's hard for a zealot. You see? Uh, he, he, it's going to be hard for him. And, and if, if that's the reason why, and we don't know exactly, so let's take care. But if that's the reason why he ultimately betrayed the Lord, if that's the reason why, then it's he could never, if, if that's the case, then it would suggest that he could never come to grips with the fact that God's mission and God's calling and the needs of the kingdom of God mattered more than Judas's mission, Judas's calling, and the needs of Judas. I see people get disillusioned on the church because the church will not reflect their needs. They get disillusioned on the church because the church does not orient itself to their mission, to their, and they say, the church, it's not real. Why? It doesn't feel real to me. The only thing you can acknowledge when you're doing that is your needs, your mission, your vision, and the church can never be a church of one. Do you see? And so uh, we, we all of us, we all of us are challenged as we see what it means to be a Christian. We, re, we, we come down from Mount Transfiguration questioning, my goodness, man, I, everything just changed. God's work is so much bigger than I ever imagined. God's kingdom is so much bigger than I ever, I ever dreamed of. God's work is beyond. Let me tell you, this is not something that is minimized or, 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 or talked down by the Lord. This is something that is freely offered. He does, says to his disciples, when there are other people that are trying to cast out demons in his name, and the disciples, you know, they have a patent. They have a patent on Jesus, and uh, they're as bad as some of us, you know. And uh, they say, oh, Lord, we've got to go shut those guys down. They're trying to cast out demons in your name. And what does Jesus do? No, don't ignore them. Uh, Then Jesus says, "I, I have sheep you know not of. What? How dare you do something to me not know about it? So let me tell you something real fun. The last week, the Department of Defense has released a secret UFO program. How many of you have seen this in the news? Anybody? I see who the cool kids are. It's all us kids, you know. I put myself with the, with the kids. You see what I'm saying? So this last week, the Department of Defense announced that they, they have had a UFO program um, for some time. And um, so... Of quite interesting, right? Uh, you, you're used to like Bubba, you know, who always, when he gets drinking on the deer stand, you know, he's always, oh, then it came down from the sky and it drug me out of my double wide, you know, and so you're used to that, you know, but it's not, it's a lot harder. There's, the, the, uh, there's a lot harder uh, when the Department of Defense has a program. So anyway, the Department of Defense has a program. Uh, it's defunded right now because they couldn't, uh, they couldn't make any progress with it, but there's a video that was released by the Department of Defense, not Bubba, by the Department of Defense, of uh, FAA, two FA-18s tracking what looks like some type of a flying saucer over the ocean. And um, uh, it is, you can see in the video, pretty cool. I mean, uh, it's going 
going against the wind, you know, all this cool stuff. And you're like, ooh. So, um, uh, you know, what, what does this mean? What, what's going on here? Um, well, first of all, let me remind you that it's still highly probable that it's some kind of a hoax. Why? Why do I say that? Uh, because there has been many, many hoaxes per, 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 uh, that have been successful over the years. And there's never been one alien showing up saying, where's Macy's? <laughs> so statistically, the Oakham's razor, <laughs> where's my school nerds? The Oakham, there we go. My Oakham's razor solution was to say, well, it's much easier to say there's some kind of a hoax that, hoax that was perpetrated by, by uh, Navy pilots than it was the, that there's this problem of, you know, uh, flying saucers. Um, may, maybe it's real. Who knows? Um, the point is, is uh, the jury is out and uh, the military was so worried that they quit spending money on it. So <laughs> it's complicated. Who knows? So my, uh, uh, somebody asked me, it might have been my wife. Did you ask me this? I'll just say she asked me. Somebody asked me seriously. Uh, so what's the deal? How does that affect Christianity if there, if there is a UFO? Well, the only honest answer is the one I gave initially, which was, I don't know. <laughs> what do you think I am? You know, it's not like Pope Nate the 14th. Uh, you know, I don't know exactly how it affects it, but let me tell you something. Uh, I, 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 I am very comfortable with the idea of worlds beyond this world. Why? I believe in an infinite God. Do you see what I'm saying? I believe in an infinite God. I don't believe, I believe in a God that makes the solar system small. Okay, so however all that works out, fine. I'm just here to tell you, uh, if... Once it's hovering over Times Square, and they're like going to the Macy's Day Parade, then I'm a believer. Until then, I have a sneaking theory that there is a link, there's a link between flight simulators where these pilots practice, and they are able to project targets onto their practice. That's how they fight, that's how they train on flight simulators, and they project targets on there. Someone said, hey, so many pixels by so many pixels to pi creates a flying saucer. Wouldn't that be awesome? Uh, let's do it this way. Let's make a video. Take it onto your, your FA-18 and then pop it out of the cassette and give it to the CIA guy. He's smoking pot anyway. <laughs> I believe it's probably something like that because, you know, there's nobody at the Macy's Day Parade saying, hoo-ha, hoo-ha, we are from Mars. No, none of that. Anyway, why am I on that? The point is this. God's work is beyond our comprehension. And God's people are beyond our perception. And God's ability to use people who are believers and non-believers is beyond our understanding. Okay? And so here you have this situation. The disciples are having to figure all this out. I need to quit soon, and I've not even got to my notes. I'm sorry. Um, they're, they're, they're having to reassess everything. Jesus is not doing what I thought he should do. He has his own mission. Jesus is not, he's not, he's not, you know, Santa Claus on high. And I make a list and he carries it out. He doesn't serve me. He invites me to serve him. And so everything is being reassessed. How do we 
become good disciples. Well, the Bible talks a lot about this. And uh, the first thing I would do is, I would say about this, is you have to accept God's work is not necessarily what you demand it to be. His work is beyond you. Our job is to humble ourselves and find a place of giving, a place of work within the larger kingdoms. The word disciple literally uh, means a learner or a pupil. Uh, Vine's expository dictionary calls it one who follows another's teaching. We are all of us, hopefully, at some levels, level disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus expects us to learn from him. The Bible clearly says so uh, multiple places. And he expects us having learned to teach others. And I want to show you, uh, as I'm, I'm finishing up here tonight, I want to show you the power of questions and why we as believers cannot be afraid of questions. First thing I want to do is I want to say that I was, I was blessed um, to, to be raised in a So uh, the idea is uh, I was blessed to be raised in a uh, home where questions were not slammed. When I went to Bible school, I had friends who they thought that I was a rebel because I would ask questions. And I actually lost friendships in high school because I asked questions. I had both professors and other students who thought that I was a manifestation of the devil, which I may have been, but that was another problem. Um, <laughs> I may have been like Peter and I spoke too soon, but um, I, I was very, I'm, I'm very blessed to have been raised in a home where uh, questions were not the enemy. And why do I say that's important? I think, particularly to all you parents, we're living in a day where we have to be comfortable with questions and we have to be comfortable with not knowing easy answers. Um, I think one of the best things you can do to get authenticity with older children is to admit when you don't know something because they already think about, they already have opinions about whether you know something or not. You see what I'm saying? And if, you, if you're willing to say, I, I don't know about this, let me, let me look into it, I think it gives you a certain authenticity that otherwise you would, you would just be a, a blowhard bloviating over everything. You see? Um, so uh, questions are very, very important in our ability to communicate the gospel authentic authentically and to speak honestly one with, with another. Questions are an important teaching tool. Jesus' favorite manner of teaching you something you, does, you don't know is to ask you a question and then to tell you a parable. This is Jesus' preferred teaching style. He asks you a question that causes you to pause and ponder, and then he tells you a story. This is Jesus' teaching uh, style. And if Jesus did it, it's the best way in the world to do it. Jesus taught by asking questions. He does this over and over. The disciples learn by asking questions. And I, I've got a bunch of references here uh, where the disciples asked questions, specifically asked questions. We should not be afraid to ask questions, and we should not hesitate to ask questions. Uh, it is the path to learning to be comfortable with a question. Uh, most of us, particularly if we are parents, we are afraid of questions because we don't know where they're going to end. 
and so to calm ourselves, we pretend as though it isn't a real question because then we don't have to face the fact that they may not end up with the answer we want them to end up with. But let me tell you, and this is profoundly true, they may not end up with your answers anyway. It doesn't help to pretend like they don't have questions. It just makes you seem shallow. And so, uh, and makes me seem shallow. And so I have, I have endeavored to um, raise, raise my ch- children with the goal that they would discover, discover God, uh, not simply have God shoved down their throat. Now, I, I was, I was, I, I, I was speaking with uh, my, one of my son's Sunday school teachers, and uh, she was saying, uh, I, li- I like the fact that uh, when you, I talk to Durant, um, there's stuff he doesn't know. And the first thing I thought was, you're just making me feel like I don't teach the word to my children. <laughs> And, um, and I got, got, got me to thinking about that. It got me to thinking about it. And the truth is, our, you see, in the Old Testament, they're taught to, 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 to make their children, uh, they, they kind of force it on their children. You, you memorize it, you hang it in the curls of your hair, you put it on your forehead, blah, blah, blah. But the, the thing uh, in the Old Testament is the law is a way of being. It is a tribal style of life. And when Jesus comes, he invites us not to a tribal way of being. He invites us to a relationship. And the Jews have hung the law on their forehead and hung it in their curls, but they are uh, incapable of having a relationship with God. I'm off in some deep waters, I know. Uh, This is something we all of us wrestle with. What is the fine line between our instruction and allowing our children and our students to discover God? You see, I am not inviting our young people to a set of rules that they memorize. I am inviting them to a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the difference? Uh, and so there's, that's a balancing, a balancing act that we have. We, we, we wrestle with this and we have to make, we have to make a call, so to speak. I try not to be afraid or irritated by questions, um, although there are some questions that have scared me at times, and there are certainly some questions that have irritated me at times. Uh, but um, if you have questions, I, I want you to feel free to, to, to send me an email. My email is my name at gmail.com, nathanhelms at gmail.com. Um, if you, if, if the, the things that I, the style I do things, the manner I do things, um, it's, it's quite intentional. Um, the way I pastor is quite intentional. There's very, very few things as a pastor I do because um, it's my personality. That's very, very few. I'm very intentional uh, with the way I exercise church discipline. I'm very intentional. I can explain biblically why I do things. So if you want to know why I haven't straightened out the person you don't like in the church, uh, there's a biblical reason uh, why I do the things the way I do them. Uh, after that, the, my most important Concern after after the biblical foundation of why we do a thing a certain way. Uh, after that is generational. Uh, I know I know I know that ranks higher than personality, but I'm telling you, and you may be a little disappointed in that. Generational. We must. We absolutely must reach this generation. We must be effective in this generation. 
um, uh, I'm thankful for, for all the generations of Christians from the very early days of the church that brought us this hope and brought us this gospel. But I'm here to tell you, God placed us in the here and now because he wanted us to have an influence on the here and now. <laughs> I know people that have quit the church because they brought lights in. Thank God that hasn't happened here uh, at all that I know of. A friend of mine, pastor, is not too far away. He had people quit his church because he has lights in his church. Um, I know I, I know other people that quit because they actually lowered the lights in the sanctuary and then left the lights on the stage. And actually, some good research on that. People experience a much more intimate worship experience when they don't feel like other people's watching them. Uh, There's actually good research on that. And the Bible doesn't really declare, so, you know, it's whatever. Uh, you get a lot more altar, people stepping forward for prayer and asking for prayer if you lower the light. But he did it at his church. He had people quit. Um, I haven't had a chance to offend you guys yet by lowering the lights. But one of these days when we have dimmers put in, maybe I'll have a chance to offend you. And the Bible says offense must come, and I just want to be used. So, <laughs> so you, you understand what I'm saying? Uh, all of these things, all, all, of, these, all of these various things um, that we, we can, we can uh, do, if, if you want to... If you have questions about that, feel free to ask me a question. I'm, I'm very intentional with my decisions. I don't want to create a church culture that is afraid of questions. There are places where questions are inappropriate. There are times when questions are inappropriate because the meeting or the gathering is not about you. It's about everybody. And so questions would be inappropriate there. But we, particularly when we minister to our children and we minister to our young people and we minister to those God-forsaken people that are in hyphen, God help them. <laughs> I love you guys. We cannot be afraid of questions because the church that stops answering a question is a church that says, I have nothing to say to this generation. All of my answers stopped in 1990. <laughs> Hadn't had a new thought since then. <laughs> we can't have a culture like that. We have something to say to this generation. We have the best something to say. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ still works today. The gospel of Jesus Christ still changes lives today. Oh, praise the Lord, somebody. Amen. Let's all stand. I feel like I've, I've, I've bored a couple of you. Uh, some of you thought I was teaching too long. I apologize for that. Uh, not for teaching too long, but that there's people who thought I was teaching too long. I'm sorry. I apologize for that. <laughs> I love all you guys. Have a great, a great week. And uh, just, just love your family. Uh, they're your family anyway. You might as well love them, right? <laughs> love them. Uh, Christianity is more important in the home than anywhere else, so make sure you're Christians to your family. Can I have a big amen? Yeah. Amen. God bless you. Let's praise him one more time before dismissed. Lord Jesus, we bless your name. We glorify your name. We worship your name. I thank you for your goodness. I praise you for your love. We love you. We adore you. We exalt you. In Jesus' name, let the church say amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to First Church Charlotte. If you're in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, come join us at 4929 North Sharon Amity Road at the corner of Shamrock Drive, Sunday mornings at 9 and 11 a.m., and Bible Study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. 
Online, find us at firstchurchclt.com or like us on Facebook or Twitter. We hope to see you soon. Come worship with us.